This morning, we want to continue to exalt the person of Christ. And, and we want to consider a very specific ministry of the Lord and, and, and Savior that I believe is often neglected and, and often misunderstood. Nevertheless, it, it might be the most, most powerful encouragement to our spiritual walk. And it's based on the most significant event of all of history. Of course, I speak of Christ's resurrection, which a couple of weeks ago we celebrated. And it's celebrated throughout the world, but many reject the powerful implication of his resurrection. The resurrection of Christ is clearly attested both in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. And, and a basic question that I will, I will answer this morning is how does the resurrection of Christ impact my life every single day? We consider his resurrection and we must realize that that resurrection has daily impact in our lives. When we read the passage before us today, we might not readily see the answer to this question, but I truly believe as we study it out, it will be one of the most, if not the most important truth for our daily sanctifying experience as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so with this, I invite you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. And thus says the word of God. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. I've titled this message, Jesus Christ, our victorious advocate. Jesus Christ, our victorious advocate. And we're going to jump in right into the text, and we're going to observe, and we're going to see the wonder of his advocacy. We see, first of all, in this first verse, the first part of it is a purpose statement for John's instructions. My little children, it's a term of endearment. Uh, obviously, uh, he considers his disciples with that intimate relationship that he has with them as, as children, spiritual children, children who, who need a father to direct them. He considers himself as that father to them who, who needs to instruct them, and they need that instruction. It's an affectionate expression that emphasizes this, this intimate relationship that John has as an apostle 
with his very dear, loved disciples. We, we don't know much about uh, the readers. It, it is said, it, uh, the historians say that uh, John in his later years was ministering in the church of Ephesus and uh, apparently he was able to, to keep in touch with many of his disciples in the different churches in Asia Minor. And so he writes this letter to encourage them but with, with that very style that he has, as we see in, 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 in the other letters that he writes, very simplistic language, he, 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 as the expression said, he cuts to the cheese. He's very direct. He's got strong language. But in the midst of that, as he, as he presents great truths in, in black and white terms, in the midst of that, he also encourages them as just a father to his little children. There was much going on during that time, much false teaching, and we can call this letter in a way a treatise, an apologetic treatise, to defend the truth, to defend the truth of Christ. And, and it is said that uh, what he is dealing with is, is this false teaching that uh, came to be known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, is, it was this, 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 this higher revelation, supposedly, that just an elite group of people could have. And one of the core teachings of, of Gnosticism is that the flesh is evil and the spirit is good and both cannot mix. And since both cannot mix... Then, then this has implications on how you see Christ. There's no way that, that, that Christ could have been human because the flesh is evil, so Christ could not have been human. So, so they deny the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And we see throughout this, this book how John exalts the, the reality of incarnation. And he, and he, and he begins the letter Speaking of his incarnation, what was from the beginning, what we have, what we have heard, what, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is reality. We, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him. The incarnation was real. And then there was other implications of this false teaching and since the flesh being evil and and the spirit being good cannot mix there actually came out this these two ideas concerning sin one was it led to an extreme asceticism we we have to mortify the body to an extreme so that we can just be totally spiritual and and so everything about the flesh was wrong we even see a little bit of this in First Timothy chapter 4 where the demons are the doctrine of demons was known by those who, who denied or should we say rejected marriage and rejected certain things to eat in chapter 4 of First Timothy. But, then, but this teaching also led to this other idea of sin. And so, since, since the flesh really doesn't mix with the spirit, it went from one end of the pendulum to the other. There is this extreme asceticism in one end, but the other is we can do whatever we want in the flesh and it's not going to affect the spirit. Which then became extreme licentiousness. 
extreme antinomianism. There really isn't sin. Sin just doesn't exist anymore. And we see John so clearly dealing with those issues. My little children. My little children. I am writing these things to you. I, I, I want you to know. I want you to be aware. And so I'm writing these things. And, and I believe he's specifically writing, when he, when he says these things, he refers to verses 5 and 10. Obviously, he's referring to the whole book. But, but in the immediate context, he's referring to verses 5 through 10 where there is this false teaching, like I said, regarding their view, or this, this, this false teaching regarding sin and how to respond to this false teaching. We see here in verse 5, this is the message which, which we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. Reference to light is pure. There, there is no darkness in him. And then he, as he establishes that, that, that core foundation, God is light, no darkness in him. Now he deals with those who say, if you notice, verse 6, if we say, verse 8, if we say, and verse 10, if we say, there's a pattern going on here. And it's interesting, he doesn't say if they say, he say if we say, I really believe, he's saying if, you, if, if we as believers, as we as believers uh, believe in this kind of philosophy, we got some problems. If, if we say, verse 6, that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, well, there's a verdict on that. We lie. We just live a big lie and do not practice the truth. You can say all you want about being in great fellowship with the Lord, but if you are in the darkness and you are walking in the darkness and and you are sinning, you can't just say, I'm not sinning. You're, you're, You're deceiving yourself. You're not practicing the truth, and then he corrects that by saying, but if we walk in the light, if we truly walk in the light, if our conduct is, is, is manifesting light behavior, pure behavior, as he himself is in the light, then we have fellowship. And you would expect him to say fellowship with God, but he said we have fellowship with one another because fellowship with God is so linked to fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, which we just celebrated this morning. The blood, the powerful, sufficient, pouring out blood of Jesus Christ is so sufficient to cleanse us eternally from all sin. So we see in verses 6 through 7, this this sinful, we could call it sinful licentiousness, living in total darkness while declaring 
spirituality. And then in verse 8, we see the sinful denial. If, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. It's the same, same verdict. They call this a sinful denial, denying the presence of the principle of sin in one. But if we confess our sins, he corrects it. Instead of denying our sin, confess it. Name sin for what it is. It's sin. Confess it. Name it as God names it. And if you do, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession of the reality of sin in you is what brings the forgiveness of sin. And in verse 10, we see sinful perfectionism. If we see that we have not sinned, declaring that, that we can reach some kind of sinless perfection, these are the ones who believe their, their ascetic lifestyle made them perfect before God. If, if we say we, we, just, we just don't commit sin anymore, well, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So in these verses, from verses 5 through 10, what, what John has argued is for the reality of sin's present, presence, specifically in the believer. You might deny it. You might think you can become perfect. But let me tell you the truth. There is a reality of sin even in us, if we, even in us, we must, we must recognize the reality of sin, even in the believer. My little children, I, I write these things. I am writing these things to you. Verse 1, chapter 2, I'm writing these things to you with this great purpose so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. You see, the believer, even as a believer, he will continue to commit sin. Now, this reality could have left the reader thinking in two ways. Well, the reader could have thought, since it is impossible to not sin, then there's no reason to even try to be holy. Or he could have thought, since I have God's forgiveness for all my sin, I, I don't really have to worry about trying to live without sin. John says, uh-uh-uh, you can't think that way. Because I'm writing these things not to say, okay, man, you know what? It's impossible not to sin, so if you can just try to be as good as you can be, you know, that's all we can expect no, he says, I, I want you to know that I'm writing these things as a father to little children. I want you to know that you must pursue being perfect. And, and the, and the, and the uh, tense of that verb is really interesting. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's, so that you could never, ever sin. But you just told me that I might. Yes, yes, we will sin, but our pursuit should be to be 100% holy. I want you to catch that. I want you to see what John is saying. Yes, sin is a reality in the believer. 
But that should never give you an excuse to pursue wholeheartedly to be perfect before him. You can never be satisfied with saying, you know, I think my life is 95% good and 5% bad. I'm good with that. You know, I'm better. I, I'm 99.9 and 0.1 bad. I'm satisfied. We, we should not be satisfied with 0.0000001 sin in our lives. We should always pursue to be perfect and holy because he is holy. I, I want you to catch, I want you to understand this connection. We will sin, but our pursuit must be to be perfect, to be perfect. John realized this. John writes so that the re- readers will take sin seriously. In chapter 3, verse 4, he, he describes what sin is. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You have God's law, and any infraction of the law is sin. And we're always sinning. Sin is extremely serious. We, we should not belittle its power. We should not belittle the consequences of sin. But, but having argued for the reality of sin, even in the believer, what hope is there then for the believer? We who still sin. There's just different things that were said throughout this morning in the Sunday school class with Pastor Andres and Pastor Shane. I don't know if you caught what he said. We, we should mourn over sin but not despair. That's, that's perfect. What causes us not to despair? And that's what this passage deals with. This is what John now addresses. I, I, I write these things. I'm writing these things to you, my little children, so that you may not sin. I want you to pursue 100% holiness in your life. We have to. Our, our new nature demands it. Then he says, and if anyone. You, you could translate it, but... I know we sin, but if anyone sins, if anyone sins, then go through this 12-step program, go through this penitence ritual, take communion daily, sacrifice this or other if we do sin. No. But if anyone sins, and very interesting, the, the tense of the verb too, if anyone sins, it's not in the present tense, it's in the aorist tense. And that, what does that mean? We say expression in Spanish, and who's that old lady? You know, aorist. 
What, what that means, it, it, here it highlights that the believer is really not known, as the present tense would, would indicate, as continual, habitual, unrepentant sin. It's in the error saying, if you commit sins, if, if you commit individual acts of sin, and that happens to the believer, but, but the believer is not known for unrepentant, habitual lifestyle of sin. But if you do commit sins, what is that makes us not despair? Here's the answer. We have an advocate with the Father. So I submit to you, brethren, that this is one of the most encouraging and hope-filled passages in all of Scripture as it directly deals with our current sanctifying experience. It deals with our current struggle with sin. That's what it is. I want you to pursue perfection, but you will sin, and if you do commit sin. So as we look at these words, we want to observe three aspects of Christ's advocacy. Three characteristics of his advocacy that increases our wonder of our great and exalted Savior and in turn encourages us in our daily spiritual journey. First of all, we will see the need for Christ's victorious advocacy. The need for Christ's victorious advocacy. Secondly, we see the reason for Christ's victorious advocacy. And then third, the extent, the reach of Christ's victorious advocacy. The verse says that if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, what exactly is an advocate? The word literally means one who comes to the aid of. One who helps. Vines defines it this way. It was, it was used in a court of justice to denote a legal assistant, counsel for the defense, an advocate. Then generally, one who pleads another's cause, an intercessor. Interestingly, the Christ in John 14 uses this word regarding the Holy Spirit. If you recall, I will ask the Father, John 14, 16, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another paracleton, another helper is how it's, how it's uh, translated. It can be translated another advocate that he may be with you forever that is a spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And, and so, so how does the Holy Spirit become a, or, or is our advocate? He's an advocate here on earth, we could say, in the sense that he pleads for our cause before a hostile world. And in this passage, we see Christ presented as our advocate. He is in heaven He's pleading for us before the Father, it says. We have an advocate with the Father. So we ask, why is this a need? We will first of all see this first aspect, the need for Christ's victorious advocacy. We'll talk about two conditions that highlights this need. First of all, it's our previous condition before the Father. Mind you how he words this very carefully, before the Father. The text is 
with the Father. That's a, that's a good translation. I'd like to use the word before the Father, and I'll explain a little bit. The essence and end of salvation. I don't know if you caught this. The, what, what, what is the essence? What, what, is, what is it that describes our salvation? What is that? The essence and end of salvation is described in these terms in chapter 1, verse 3. Look. Chapter 1, verse 3. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, to, to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father. The end of our salvation is fellowship with the Father. The only way we can be saved is if we are favored before the Father. The only way we can escape his anger is if, if he is somehow appeased and he gives us access to him, the Father. Fellowship with the Father is what salvation is all about. To have eternal life is to have fellowship with the Father. Recall John 17, 3. This is eternal life, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, that, that they may know you, the only true God. He's talking about the Father. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But as you well know, that that fellowship was broken. And now instead of fellowship and communion, man experiences the wrath of God. As we see in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, that says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Romans, 9, uh, Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So the verdict is clear. Man is in sinful rebellion against God, not even wanting fellowship with him. His, he, he, is, he is absolutely destitute. There is none who seek after God. There is no fellowship with the Father. Consequently, all that awaits him is God's wrath on him. But glory to God, he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to restore that fellowship with the Father. And it is through the death and resurrection of Christ that we now have a restored fellowship with the Father. You recall Christ saying in chapter 14 of John, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the truth, I'm sorry, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. The only way that you can have salvation is to have this fellowship with the Father. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am your access to the Father. Ephesians 2, 18 through 19, for through, through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So, so we see that there is this need for Christ to, to, to advocate, to, to bring us in right relationship, to give us access to the Father because our condition before the Father is, is total sinful rebellion and all that awaits us is eternal wrath. And Christ becomes our access to the Father. But though this truth is glorious, to gain access to the Father. This is not the emphasis of this passage in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. The, the emphasis of this passage is our present, as believers, struggle with sin in this lifetime. So now we see our present condition with the Father. What, what, what is our present condition with the Father? And, and he's talking about in, in the context of, of the struggle with sin, or, or we could just call it outright disobedience. If one sins, if anyone sins. Here John expresses in, in this conditional statement the reality that we, we do sin. We do sin. If anyone commits an act of sin, a true Christian will not be marked by unrepentant lifestyle of habitual sin. He, he will sin, though. He will. And so look what it says. If anyone sins, we have. It's important. Echomen in the Greek. He doesn't say we had. You know, we, we had that advocate 2,000 years ago. No, no, we, we currently have an advocate with the Father. What, what should be emphasized here is this great reality of the, of the current, present advocacy and, and the terms that, that, that John uses, pros, ton, patera, literally before the Father. I think this is key. Because this reminds me of another time that John himself, in the first verse of the gospel of John, uses a very similar expression that says, prostantheon. In the beginning was the word. And the word was, you guys have fallen asleep, was with, literally, with the God. And he refers there to the Father. Prostantheon, he, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the idea is face to face, with, the word was face to face before the Father. There was, there was interaction be, between the Son and the Father. There was life. There was, there was a dynamic relationship going on between the Son and the Father. This is glorious. Prostantheon, now he says, now before the Father, we have life going on again between the Son and the Father as an advocate. As an advocate. Face to face with the Father. Now, presently, this real, live, dynamic interaction is again taking place between the risen Word and the Father. So, so do you see what he's saying here? Do you see the sobering implication of the statement? Follow with me. Basically, it is implying 
that when we as believers, when we as believers commit a sin, we would still experience God's wrath were it not for the real live advocacy of the risen Christ. We would still be receiving God's wrath if it wasn't for the real live advocacy of Jesus Christ. Look with me real quickly. Great resurrection passage in Luke, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know it. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. Paul arguing for the resurrection of believers based on the resurrection of Christ. And then he uses a negative way of arguing. I said, if Christ were not resurrected, if Christ did not rise... Especially verse 17. Look at and if Christ has not been raised, so it is assumed that he has died, okay? He has died. He, he, he hung on that cross, shed blood, he died. But what if he had not been raised? What if he stayed dead? Your faith is worthless. I want you to think about this. Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And if you are still in your sins, you deserve the wrath of God if you were not raised. Let me just put it another way. We really cannot celebrate the death of Christ without celebrating his resurrection. Think about that. He is currently, presently, prastan patera, before the Father, as a victorious advocate. As a victorious advocate. Christ needed to rise from the dead, to be able to be the everlasting advocate before the Father. Now we're going to look at sort of another different angle on this. Wow, I only have five minutes. This is terrible. Can you give me about 15? Is that okay? Let's go to, let's go to Romans 4, chapter, 20, uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 25, and I, I just want to walk through this passage, and this is, this is just incredible truth. Look, look what it says in verse 25 of chapter 4. He who was delivered over because of our transition and was raised because of our justification. Did you catch that song earlier? We've been justified. He rose uh, for our justification. Here it is. And was raised, raised because of our justification. And look what he does in, in chapter 5. I'm basically going to just read it and just make a few comments. Therefore, okay, this is tied. This is tied to that verse. He who was delivered over because of our transgression and was raised because of our Justification. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have this access through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace, in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character and hope. What kind of hope? A hope that does not disappoint, verse 5. Why doesn't it disappoint? Why can this hope be certain? Why can this hope be eternal? Eternal life with the Father. How can we be assured of this hope? And that's what he argues for in the next verses. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it has to do with the love of God being poured out. And now he describes love. Human love compared to God's love. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. A show of incredible love. He died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So so if we think of human love, you know, I'm going to die for my children, but I'm not going to die for Osama bin Laden, basically is what he's saying. I'll die for, for, for somebody I think is good enough and deserves my death. That's human love. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, where we were all Osama bin Laden's, I know that was years ago, but that's what comes to mind. The terrorists. While we were all this, verse 8, Christ died for us. Wow, what a great truth. Christ died for us. What a great display of love. Much more than. Whoa, 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 there's more? There's more, much more than. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. Look at this. Through him now. I added now, but verse 10 explains it. It explains it. Look what it says. For, I'm going to explain this to you, Paul says. For if while we were enemies, and, and, and being enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. We were reconciled to him through the death of his we, we had this access to him. Much more. Much more. Having been reconciled, now, now, now we are reconciled, we're no longer enemies. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved, saved by what? His current life as our advocate. Isn't that amazing? He currently, right now, is before the Father ministering in a proactive way to keep us saved. And nothing will destroy that. Nothing. He rose again for our justification. Why is he the victorious advocate? I'll give you two reasons. It says right here in the text, back to First John. It's because he's righteous. He can fulfill that role of being a perfect, victorious advocacy because he is righteous. 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ was able to keep God's law perfectly and, and, and die as a perfect and spotless lamb and now as a risen savior, his perpetual righteousness before the Father becomes our eternal salvation. The reason the Father accepts Christ's advocacy is because Jesus Christ is righteous. His advocacy, or, or, or we could even say his intercession, his intercession with the Father will always be victoriously sufficient. Romans eight thirty two. He, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us? I think, we have misunderstood this intercession. We, we thought that Jesus is praying for us. You know, hey, you know, Carlos, um, he's got a hurt toe. Uh, God, could you help him with a hurt toe? You know, I want to intercede for Carlos. No, it's not that. When he talks about interceding, he, he is interceding as an advocate. He goes before the Father with his righteousness and says, Carlos is being accused by the, by the evil one as not deserving. And you're right, he's not deserving of, but it's my righteousness imputed in him. And I plead the cause for Carlos. Nothing to do with my works. Nothing to do with my performance. It's all about Christ and his righteousness. Christ and his righteousness. We need not worry that the judge will reject us because what secures our favor before God the Father is not our righteousness, but the everlasting righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he amplifies this because of being a propitiation. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. And this concept of propitiation basically has to do with the ability uh, to remove God's wrath toward us through the perfect, just, and righteous sacrifice of Christ. We can see that in Romans 3.25. Won't read it. So it is his death. So it is his death. That was a propitiation, the sufficient sacrifice. It was his death that was the adequate once for all, very important, once for all propitiation to satisfy God's wrath. But don't miss this great truth. Christ himself eternally and actively presents the reality of his satisfying sacrifice before the Father when we sin as believers. And that is what absolves us from the condemnation we deserve. He died once and for all. And he can present that to the Father. I was the sacrifice. And I stand here before you with my righteousness to advocate for my children. What an incredible truth. And then he increases the wonder of this propitiation in this, in this advocate ministry, in this intercessory ministry of Christ by expressing the extent of his victorious advocacy. It reaches to us. You notice that? He himself is a propitiation for our sins. Our sins. Makes it very personal. Our sins. The sacrifice is sufficient for our sins. But you know what? Not only for our sins. Not only for our own, but also for those of the whole world. 
Now, this phrase has been an object of much debate. The question that arises is, in what way is Christ the propitiation for those of the whole world? Which comes to the basic question, what does the world refer to here? And there's three basic interpretations. World could refer to every human being in the world without exception, both believers and unbelievers. Or world could refer to, as some circles would say, is the elect of the world who one day will be saved. Or John could be just simply making a reference to all believers beyond this select group of people. In other words, all believers without distinction. Without distinction. So if we want to respond to the first interpretation of, of it being all human beings without exception, we see that if this were so, all human beings, whether believers or unbelievers, can enjoy the intercessory work and ministry of advocacy of Christ to keep them saved. And, and this can't be, knowing that unbelievers don't enjoy this work of Christ. They are not saved, and without trust in Christ, their eternal destiny is God's eternal wrath. Now to respond to the second interpretation, although it is true, that, that the elect of God will necessarily be saved. And they will necessarily be justified through faith in Christ. The emphasis of this verse is not the elect who will one day be saved. John's not highlighting God's elective purpose here. What, what John is highlighting is the wonder of Christ's advocacy for believers who sin. And John's emphasis is the wonder of Christ's intercessory ministry that assures the believer's favorable stance before the Father. So, so this advocacy will only apply to believers who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. And what John wants to highlight is that this advocacy is so powerful to reach not only us, not only, only a select group of people, but it's so powerful to reach all believers all around the globe, regardless of race, regardless of gender, social status, educational level, etc., etc. It is so powerful to extend to the nations. All believers in the whole world can enjoy the security that Christ presently and actively intercedes for them to keep them justified before the Father. This should be a motivation for us, should it not? To then go into all the world and proclaim the hope of Christ so that men and women of every tribe, of every nation, can enjoy the wonder of his victorious advocacy. That's why we do what we do in Honduras. We are proclaiming and training proclaimers to preach Christ's gospel and his victorious advocacy to all the nations. We had a wonderful experience just recently. We invited some of the students to come and enjoy fellowship in our home. And as we were sitting around our round table, I looked around. There were five nations represented around our table. That's just incredible how the Lord has brought different people, Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Cuba, Guatemala, El Salvador, as students there. And we have the privilege and blessing to impact their lives and encourage them in their walk. Christ advocates for them because of the sufficient propitiation 
So to conclude and summarize, the basic but profoundly awesome truth in this passage is simply this. When we sin, as believers, our only hope, our only remedy before the Father is Jesus Christ, our advocate. It's not our works. It's not our lifestyle. It's not our ritual. It is nothing else but Jesus Christ. El glorioso Cristo. The glorious Christ. Who is our advocate. The righteous one. The propitiation for our sins. The propitiation for all believers in the whole world. So may we be ever encouraged. And, and may we burst into praise as we stand in awe of the wondrous beauty of Christ's victorious advocacy. Let's pray. Father, who are we to deserve favor from God? Absolutely nothing. Christ, our advocate, stands prostan patera before the Father, interceding for us. We will sin, but we will not despair. We have hope in the Christ, the righteous, the sufficient propitiation for us and for the whole world. May we relish in that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.